0: As we continue our sermon series this morning on the nature and value of church life and what each individual Christian is called to be and to do within it, we're going to turn together to a familiar parable that comes from what is known as Jesus's Olivet Discourse. It is the fifth of Matthew's five extended discourses of Jesus in the gospel. It's the last of the five, and it's uh, right before the Passion narrative there at the end of the gospel. And in this discourse, Jesus is offering a series of lessons regarding the end of time and how his devoted followers should wait for his return. He says, no one but the Father knows when that return will be. And therefore, in chapter 24, verse 44, he says, you must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. But this particular parable, the one that we're going to be in this morning there in chapter 25, is about more than just merely being ready. And it's about more than just simply, you know, performing one's duty. It's more than just being prepared for a long delay. Like, those are the lessons of some of the other teachings within the Olivet Discourse. No, this this parable is about being ready as servants who have been commissioned to multiply the master's assets. So turn, if you would, to Matthew 25, We're on page 795. If you grabbed one of the guest Bibles there in the back, and if you didn't and you don't have a Bible, you're welcome even now to go grab one. No one's going to look down on you if you want to grab one of those Bibles. Even if you have a Bible, but it's not the NLT and you want to follow along in the NLT, you're welcome to grab a Bible. And if you just flat out don't own one, well, those are there for you as a gift. Feel free to take one uh, this morning. It's our gift to you. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14 down to verse 30, the NLT labels this the parable of the three servants, but you might remember it as the parable of the talents. Verse 14, again, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last. Dividing it in proportion to their abilities, he then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account for how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, You gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, Take the money from this servant, And give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Throw now this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master, in the parable here, gathered his servants and entrusted his money to them. Now, you may have noticed in the NLT here, they render uh, the word bag, into bags of silver, but as I mentioned a moment ago, we're used to hearing it as talents, which, of course, uh, once upon a time meant a, a particular measure of weight. I believe it was something around 75 pounds was a talent. By Jesus' day, it had come to represent a vast sum of money. And when we're talking about talent or multiple talents, uh, in today's equivalent, we're looking at something like many hundreds of thousands into millions of dollars worth of, of money. It, it wasn't a small amount. It was a, a very large amount. But the, the parable, if we get caught up in, in money, in money issues alone, we miss the point of the parable. It's not just about money. In fact, I would almost argue it's not directly even about money. Did you know that our English definition for the word talent comes from this parable? Did you know that? Now, you and I don't talk about money with the word talent, do we? We talk about something else. In the 14th century, Christianized Britain was so convinced that Jesus was using this monetary word metaphorically to imply any God-given stewardship that we are entrusted with that it came to mean aptitude or skill. It was more than just money. It It was anything that was given to you from God is talent. As a result, when you and I say someone is talented, we don't mean they're rich. We mean that they're gifted with some innate, extraordinary ability of some kind, don't we? Take, for example, in 13 days, the Ohio State University football program (laughs) will launch their campaign to claim their ninth national title. Now, all the polls and the analysts, don't put thumbs down, Kentucky man, you won't even be in the top 25. All the polls and all the analysts have, as they always do, Alabama as the preseason number one, and and fair enough, don't clap. We're not clapping for Alabama in this church. You can clap for three schools plus one. You can clap for Duke, you can clap for UNC, you can clap for NC State, because you're all North Carolinians, and you can clap for Ohio State, because I command it. Other than that, we don't, I don't hear anything else. So Alabama's ranked number one, but, but all the analysts agree that there is a clear number two, and there's only one program that's really positioned to, to give it to Alabama this year, and that is the Ohio State University Buckeyes. Now, why, why are these teams set apart as, as in an upper echelon or a league of their own? Well, it's because of what? Talent. Well, not just talent, but primarily Talent. They're loaded with talent. Young men who are just gifted. They're they're stronger. They're faster. They they can jump higher and farther. And they're they're just they're just better athletes. They're just something that inside of them that is uniquely unique. I remember when I was. Um, back when I lived in Ohio, way back in the day, uh, once my, my brothers and I got to go and watch LeBron James as a high schooler play basketball. He, his team had traveled to Columbus, and so we were able to go watch a game in person. It was, it was really fun to watch. You know, this is back when LeBron, you know, before LeBron got all political and, you know, everyone hates LeBron now. Um, it, he was just a kid from Akron at the time, and, and it was really interesting to see when he stepped onto the court, there was something different about him. I mean, he, he was like a man among boys out there on that basketball court. And, and he was playing with elite high school players, but they, there was something different. He is just uniquely gifted to play the game of basketball. And so, a talent, as you and I approach this text, and we hear this language about bags of silver, or bags of gold, or sums of money, and investing to, to, bring a, to get a return Yes, it's a monetary figure that Jesus is referring to. But it symbolizes something more. As Jesus is talking about the manner in which his devoted followers are to wait for him to return. He is the master in the story. He is the one who has gone away on a long journey and will be coming back after a period of time. How are we to invest what he has given us in the meantime? The talents here are anything that the Lord has entrusted to his servants to invest for his purposes. Maybe it is money, but maybe it's time. Maybe it's gifts and abilities. Whatever comes from Jesus belongs to Jesus and is to be used for Jesus. Now, some might say that this, and this is foolish, but we have to address it. Some might say this is Jesus' endorsement of slavery, Okay, I hope you just grumble a little bit and shake your head when you hear something like that. Um, there are some who would try to, to you know, bring, bring uh, shame to the Scriptures by making such a suggestion. It's not the case at all. Jesus isn't saying it's okay to, to have slaves. What Jesus is doing is he's taking an illustration from the time in which he lived in a way that people would understand. and He was using it to make a point, to lay, lay down a principle, Slaves in the ancient world were were everywhere, and they had all manner of responsibilities. Don't think, you know, the the American slave trade issue of you know the the time in which our country was founded and up until the Civil War. That's not the type of slavery we're talking about. This is people who who were uh, just. It was a part of the every culture in in the world. And, and a master would assign responsibilities to, to his, his slaves or his servants according to his assessment of them. What are they capable of. How can they be held—what res- are they responsible for? What are they able to do? And so you notice in the passage that the three servants didn't all receive the same amount of money to invest, did they? One received a whole bunch of money, millions of dollars by our, by our evaluation today, worth of talents, worth of resources to invest one received two, which was still an exorbitant amount of money, and one received just one. And in the same way, as we are beginning to think about this metaphorically, and, and hopefully by now you're beginning to, to, to make application for your own life and apply it to your own life and see where, what does this mean for you, you, you know that Jesus, in the same way, doesn't entrust things to his servants today exactly the same. No two of us in here are identical in, in our and what we've been entrusted with, with our responsibilities, the things the Lord has enabled us to do for his purposes. And yet all of us are responsible to do those things, aren't we? Back at General Conference a couple of weeks ago, one of the speakers referred to two different kinds of lights, and I thought this was a really, uh, really helpful illustration. He talked about how, you know, when you go into the the main room, you you might have the, the great big chandelier there hanging, you know, ornate and beautiful and on full display for everyone to see. But then he contrasted that with, you know, the the humble bulb on the back porch, right? They're not the same light, are they? They're very different lights, and yet both of them serve a purpose. And his point was, you know, not every, every one of us is a chandelier, and not every one of us is a humble bulb, and yet all of us are to shine wherever Jesus places us. I thought that was a really, really helpful illustration. You see, the issue here is not so much what you have been given as much as it is about what you do with it. The talents might vary from person to person, but the expectation of investment does not. Was the master more happy with the one who returned five than the one who returned two? I don't think so. In fact, there's nothing in the text that, that suggests that just because the one returned you know, 10 total talents to him versus the one who only returned four, there's nothing that suggests he was happier with him than the other. In fact, if you look at his response, he says the exact same thing to both. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling the small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Enter into my joy. Let's celebrate together what has taken place. Your return on investment was exactly the same. It didn't matter the amount. It mattered what you did with it. Both of you earned a 100% profit on what I gave to you. It's not the quantity of the talent that matters, but how it's used. Everything you and I have and everything that you and I are as Christians belongs to Jesus and is to be used for his purposes. And if you are a person of faith, you have received much. Some receive more, some receive less in the story, but all of them received a whole bunch. And if you are in Christ. And if you've received anything from God, then you are then to invest what you have been given into the service of his kingdom. Paul says in Philippians 2, you might remember this, he says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Why? For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. You know what's amazing to me about those two passages? It's not just that God supplies the gifts, the abilities, it's that God also supplies the power. He doesn't say, here's something that you can do, now go do it on your own strength. No, he enables, he empowers, he even gives, as we, as we saw there in, in Philippians 2, he even gives the desire to do the things that he wants us to do. It's as if God has done just about everything but the actual doing of the thing that he has given. It's amazing. God gives us all that we need to do all that he requires. And if that is true, which I believe it is, then it is also true that to whom much is given, much indeed is required. In Christ, God has given us his everything. And by the power of the Spirit, you and I must give him our everything in return. Now, as I was wrestling with this passage this week, and I did wrestle with it, it it's got a very immediate um, uh, you know, understandable, applicable lesson. But as I, as I spent time diving in and crafting a, a message to, to explain and to um, expound upon the truths here, I found myself really wrestling. And I, and I reworked and reworked this over and over again. It's still nowhere in the same you know, galaxy as where I would like it to be. Um, but it is what it is. But my challenge that I found as I was working through this text is that there's a really, really hard truth in it. Maybe you have detected it already. Maybe you feel it. Maybe you've found yourself a little uncomfortable in your seat this morning. I'm very uncomfortable preaching this message because I have been just slapped in the face with the the hardness of the point. Um, And here's why. Jesus doesn't leave any middle ground in his discussion here, does he? Now, it is true, there are three individual servants mentioned in the parable. And yet, though there's three, they really only represent two categories of servant. It's not three different options, it's really two options that Jesus gives us here to to identify where we fit into the parable. You have the one option, the, the first two who found delight in their assignment. They, they, they were content with their station that the master had entrusted much to them and, and it was now up to them to do something with it in a, in a way that improves the master's assets. And they, they worked hard and they committed themselves and they were faithful with the little. I, I like that. Isn't that a funny thing when, when the master calls the talents a little? Doesn't that tell us just how much more lie in store for them in the future? You know, you and I have received much in this life in Christ. But if we apply that to the parable, it's just a little compared to what lies ahead. It's beautiful. But they were content to take what little they had been given and work hard to see it multiplied for the master's gain and to give it all back. It it was never theirs to have. It was all the master's from beginning to end. And they, were, they found delight in the work. They found delight in the, in the assignment. And now they were given the delight of entering into the joy of the master himself. And yet, the other category was quite different, wasn't it? You have the, the first two who were delighting in their assignment. But then you had the other, who I would say was willfully disobedient. So it wasn't an accident, a, a mistake. This was something that was done intentional. You see, the the third man's sin wasn't just laziness. It wasn't just laziness. I mean, the master himself said, at the very least, you could have just put it in the bank. I mean, that's the the easiest thing to do. The the lazy person could even pull that off. Just stick it in the bank, and as it just sits there collecting the tiny little bit of interest, at least there'll be some kind of return at the end. But no, the, the, the wicked servant didn't do that, did he? No, he took, this, he took what was given to him and he stuck it in the ground. Almost as if to say, if I can't have it, neither can you. If it doesn't benefit me, it doesn't benefit you. You're a harsh man. You, you harvest where you don't plant. In other words, you give all this work to other people, you let them go do all the work, and then you come back and expect to get all the profit." You see the resentment in his, in his attitude and in his behavior. It's a jealousy and self-centeredness and, and an, a, a usurpation of authority. It's not the servant's decision of how to handle the money. It is the master's decision. He has entrusted it to the servant. There's, a, there's an implicit command. Take this and use it well. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And I give you the joy of entering into what is mine. You get to participate in my abundance. You get to share in, in what, is, what is wonderful. And yet that wasn't enough for him. And so his sin wasn't laziness, no. It was in the assumption that he had the right to make his own determinations. It's nothing short of making himself master. And I wonder how many of, how many of us here in our relationship to Jesus, have done something just like that. He's called you to be something. He's called you to do something. He's given us a commission, a commandment. His word is full of direction and purpose in what we are to be and do in this life. And yet so often we say, well, that applies to someone else. Or that's too hard for me. That, that costs too much. I have way too much else going on in my life. And we, we get that relationship completely out of balance. And the first two didn't have that problem. They understood that they didn't have the option. If they were going to belong to the master, they had to be yielded to the master. And Jesus isn't just your savior. He's your Savior and your Lord. And you don't get to pick and choose which he is. Because for him to be one is to be both. And if you receive much from him, you have also received a mandate from him on how you are to use it and put it to use. And the first two had no problem with that. And they also understood that they they better invest what they have been given, what they have been given, or it will be all taken away. The responsibility they were given was conditional upon how they used it. But I think even more than that, I think they knew his heart. I think that's the key here. They knew the master's heart, that he takes care of those that belong to him, that he welcomes them into his abundance and joy. He's not, he may be a harsh man in the sense that he has expectations, but oh, what a beautiful open heart to welcome his servants into his joy, to share what he has, He's not just sharing with his children. He's sharing with his household. All that belong to him get to enjoy what is his. And to those who are faithful with the little, he's content to give them even more. And and, and as I said a moment ago, the the little points to the the great. All that lies in store for those who are faithful with what he has entrusted to them. But the wicked doesn't know the master's heart, nor does he care to. He's lost sight of the fact that the talents were never his to begin with. How how easy is that to think that the things that we have, the things we can do, the person that we are is somehow ultimately ours. It's not yours. It's It's an illusion. You say, well, I worked hard, Pastor Sean. I worked hard to earn that thing. Well, yeah, but where did you get the energy and the power and the capabilities to do that? The scriptures say he's the giver of the gifts. He's the giver of the abilities. He's the giver of the power. He's the giver of the desire. Where do your passions come from? They come from him. The wicked loses sight of that. The wicked one doesn't see grace for what it is, but instead feels entitled and is ungrateful. And he is lazy in a sense. He's not willing to put in the effort. Why? Because he's self-centered. I mean, you can hear him say why bother going through all the trouble of multiplying these assets only to just give them to someone back to someone else? Why bother? If it doesn't benefit me, why why put any effort into it at all? And these are the two categories that Jesus gives us. <laughs> and and I know they're they're kind of extremes, but it's to make a point. Jesus is saying, where do you fit in this equation? Because there is no middle third option here. You know, we like to think, well, I didn't go bury things in the ground. I don't have resentment. But I'm also just more passive, and I'm just going to kind of ride this one out until the end. Well, Jesus is saying, you know, that, that passivity, that, that unwillingness to do anything, that is the disobedience. You either going to do what the master has entrusted you to do, or you don't. Those are the two options we 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 have here. For those who do what they what they are called to do, with what they have been given, there is reward and abundance in in life. But for those who don't, and this is the hard part that I grapple with, and it makes me uncomfortable, and I hate to even say it, but for those who don't, there's nothing but darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very stark, grave situation that the Lord presents. Those who look to his return. That's you and I. You and I who, who, who claim to love Jesus, who claim to have faith in Jesus and want to follow him and, and are more than happy to say yes to things he gives us. Oh, it's so easy to say yes to his, his provision of salvation. I mean, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you say yes to that? Well, the only reason you might not say yes to that is because you also don't want his claim of ownership over your life. Hey, it would be nice to not have to worry about hell, but man, I'd have to give up my rights today. I want to be, in, I want to be the captain I want to be the master. I want to call the shots. And where most of our problems as Christians come is when we think we can have both. We think we can enjoy all the benefits of of the salvation he provides and still be the captain. It doesn't work that way. You either yielded to him or you were not. You were either at work putting to to use what he has give, given you, what he has blessed you with, in, in the, with the goal of expanding his assets, his kingdom, what belongs to him, and it's all going to return to him in the end, or you're not. You're willfully choosing not to do what you are called to do. And that's a really hard lesson, folks. And it shows us that Jesus means business when it comes to the Christian life. Your time in this life as a Christian is not meant to be spent living for yourself, that's, that's what characterizes you before your life in Christ. When everything was about you, your heart was curved in. Everything is, is filtered through the lens of self. What benefits me? What do I stand to gain from this? You know, what what, what, what can what can I get? How does this help my cause? But your, your life as a Christian is not to be spent that way. No, you and I are, are humble recipients of grace and mercy. Nothing you and I do on our own power has any eternal value whatsoever. You and I can have no claim on any of the ultimately good things in our lives. All of it is from him. All of it is for him. And yet, we want to sit on the sidelines and play it safe all too often, don't we? But we can't do that because to make investments is by nature to take risks. God doesn't want you to play it safe. God doesn't want you to maintain the status quo. God forbid you hide your talent in the ground. Now, he wants you to step out, not in your own strength, not in your own sense of, you know, ability of, you know, I'm going I'm to pick myself up, I'm going to do the thing, and I'm going to show God. no. No, he's not, he's not asking you to do He wants you to step out in faith, trusting in him, trusting in his provision, trusting in his giftedness, trusting in the power that he gives to you to step out and take risks and spend and be spent for the sake of his kingdom. And friends, some of you have been sitting on the sidelines for far too long. Some of you have been sitting in the, on the margins at conference, they talked about you know, dividing your congregation into thirds, and you had the, the, the first third. as you know, Imagine sort of like a, a worship center. Now, this is not literal as though just the first third of the rows are what I'm talking about. I think metaphorically. You have the front third that is engaged 100%. They're all in. But as you go towards the back, you have, you have those that are just less engaged, less engaged, less committed, until you get to, to the, that back third that's, that's just barely on the margins. And, and one of the effects of COVID is we've lost a lot of the, third, the back third. And, and, and I want to tell you, you can't, you can't take the words of Jesus seriously here and be content on the back row. You either, you either start moving forward or just get out. Jesus means business. He's, it's not a joke. It's not just a, I'm going to dangle a carrot out there. As long as you're kind of reaching for it, you're doing the right thing. No, this is, this is a, he's essentially commanding you and I to be busy until his return. Not busyness for busyness' sake. No, be about his business in the world for the sake of his kingdom. He doesn't want you to sit on the sidelines. Some of you are there because you think you don't have anything to offer. That's not the case. You think you're being humble. You're not. You're selling him short. Is he not capable of giving you giftedness? I mean, again, that, that, that passage there in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to flip back on my notes here. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Who are you to say that God hasn't given you anything to be or do? No, some of you are on the sidelines because of that. Others are there because you're just too afraid to step out. You're afraid of the cost or the risk. Others are on the sidelines because you care too much for the things of the world and lack an interest in storing up treasures for yourself in heaven. But if you truly are looking for Jesus' return, this cannot be a wait-out-the-clock type of operation. He is expecting you in whatever way he is expecting you uniquely. You're, you are not called to do what I'm called to do. And I'm not called to do what you're called to do. There is a variety in richness of his giftedness and his investments. And he's expecting you to be faithful with those things today. Today, not Tomorrow. Flip back a few verses in the Olivet Discourse and you see what Jesus has to say about those who are thinking they have time to wait until tomorrow. Oh no, he's coming back like a thief in the night. Which, by the way, is not Jesus endorsing stealing. (laughs) This morning, we've tried to make it as easy for you as possible to discover ways in which you can do exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't get easier than this. There's a visual representation of opportunities for your life. We, we, we do this every year. We put these beautiful displays together. All of them are different. All of them require different abilities and different commitments and different types of, of you know, people, no one person can do all of these things. No one person is called to do all of these things. This is the, the beautiful tapestry of, of giftedness and ministry that, that of, of Jesus himself right here in this church. And it's not just there for you, as I said in the announcements, to just take in and enjoy the colors and the snacks, which, by the way, I want you to enjoy the snacks. I have the best ones at my table, so come see me, and I will hook you up. No, these are wonderful opportunities for you no two are the same. They all have value. Some are more, you know, chandelier and others are more, you know, humble-bulby. I couldn't wait to say chandelier and humble-bulby this morning. <laughs> <laughs> but in all of them, in all of them, Jesus shines. Jesus shines. Just yesterday I was in here. Um, I keep one of the NLTs in the back in my office so that when I'm preparing on sun, uh, during the week for Sunday and I, I go to the passage where I'm going to be reading from, I can grab that Bible and look at what page number to tell you so that you can easily find it. Um, but the other day I had someone who's not a, in our church who came and needed some, you know, counsel and prayer and um, whatever, whatever little I could offer him. He, I found out he didn't, he didn't have a, a Bible in a modern translation. And so I gave him the NLT off my shelf. So I needed another one. So I came over here yesterday um, just to grab one. And I had a, a providential encounter with, with Joanne White. She was in here. She was putting final touches on something of hers. And, you know, 30 seconds before or after we would have missed each other entirely. But we had this beautiful, quick conversation. And she told me a, a story of how just last year the Holy Spirit had used uh, a Hands of Hope announcement I mean, we're not even talking about the the actual, you know, work that the Hands of Hope does. It was just an announcement that, that the Holy Spirit used to tug at the heart of a woman who wasn't even a part of the church, was actually just kind of passing through and just happened to be here for just a short period of time. I guess her house was being built. She was waiting for that to finish before she moved in somewhere else. So anyway, she just happened to be here and heard this announcement, and the Holy Spirit tugged at her heart, and Joanne could point to a direct, you know, chain of cause and effect from that moment to when she made it to her new place where she's living, got involved with a similar type of group, and then became involved in the church, and then just recently got baptized. Who would have thought? As Pastor Sean is holding a quilt, was it one of those times? Oh, yeah. I think there's something symbolic about the pastor not even being visible in this equation. So apparently, the less you see me, the more likely you are to get baptized one day. Maybe that's the moral of the story. I don't know. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. (laughs) who will be playing the guitar next week with a paper brown bag on his head. Um, That'll be his punishment for chiming in during my sermon. Um, But you can see this very uh, simple—no one would have thought anything like that would have come from that. And yet, because of God at work in the little things— a soul was added to the kingdom. And Joanne said this. <laughs> she said, It's amazing to me how the Lord uses our puny little efforts for his kingdom. And I thought, exactly. Exactly. It's exactly right. It's not up to you to save anybody. It's not up to you to produce fruit. It is up to you to invest what you've been given, what you have been entrusted with, to cultivate the master's vineyard. He produces the fruit. He's the the giver of life. And he's the one that's at work in the end. It's not about how much or how little you've been given, but whether or not you will be faithful with it. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. I pray that the Holy Spirit will be tugging at your heart this morning as you take a walk around the worship center here in just a moment. Let us pray. Church, every... January at the beginning of the year, we have a covenant renewal service where we we pledge ourselves to be committed to however the Lord would use us. And I I want to take the those words that we recite together and make that our prayer this morning. And I'm going to pray it slowly, and I want you to pray it yourself in your heart as I as I say these words. Lord, make me what you will. I put myself fully into your hands. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. Let me be a chandelier (laughs) or just a humble bulb on the back porch. I freely and with a willing heart give all of myself to your pleasure and your disposal. In Jesus' name, amen.